about me in, of Moses and the, and the psalm must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were con continually in the temple blessing God. The word of the Lord. Thanks, John. And our text flows right from that. You know that... Um, Acts is actually book two of Luke's gospel. Luke wrote both, although in our Bibles they're separated by uh, the gospel according to John for theological, biblical reasons. But uh, those two books go together, both of them dedicated to Theophilus, God lover. And uh, so our text will take right up from there. We're going to be looking uh, at, Luke, at Acts chapter one, beginning with verse 12. <clears throat> but actually before that, I do want to say a bit more serious a word to mothers, one that I was going to say before I prayed for you, and then I heard myself telling that silly story and decided it wasn't the time to say this. But um, uh, this morning early, I was reading uh, Douglas Murray's beautiful uh, poetry blog in which he talks about poems that he's memorized over the years and that have meant a lot to him. And uh, he was this morning on Mother's Day using one that was actually written by a father, uh, C. Day Lewis, not C.S. Lewis, but C. Day Lewis, Cecil Day Lewis, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, who was best known both for having been the poet laureate of Great Britain uh, and also for being the father of uh, the great actor Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, when Daniel Day's older brother, uh, Sean, played his first football, or we would say soccer game at his school, his father watched him play and then watched him wander away apart from the other kids back to the school and wrote so movingly of that, it's called Walking Away. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but just this final stanza. The father writes, a mother has known this so well. I have had worse partings, but none that so gnaws at my mind still. Perhaps it is roughly saying what God alone could perfectly show how selfhood begins with a walking away, and love is proved in the letting go. And as I read that, I gave thanks to God for a mother who was willing to let us go. She did what she could, 
And then she let us go and stopped trying to mother her unless we saw it. And a wife who, in the same way, let us go. And I want to thank every mother here who has loved her children enough at the right time to let them walk away. And as God does with us when we walk away, to show your love by letting them go. It's the best way to get them back. Okay, now for God's word. Acts chapter one, beginning with verse 12, Jesus, if you recall, has <clears throat> told them to go back to the city of Jerusalem and to wait for the power that they have to have. He has commissioned them. He has told them uh, that you are to be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem. And then he lays out the strategy of outworking concentric circles of ministry <clears throat> until the whole world, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation has heard the great good news of the gospel. But then he warns them, you can't do this in your own strength. So go back to Jerusalem and wait until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit now to be poured out. They've received the Spirit, but not as they will at Pentecost receive the Spirit when he will come in the full power of now the ascended, glorified, reigning Lord Jesus, who has accomplished redemption. So, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then it talks about what happened to him and quotes two Psalms. And so then in verse 21, he says, one of the men who've accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The word of the Lord. Wow. I hope you're more grateful for the word of the Lord than you sound. Let's try that one again. The word of the Lord. Amen. I could see it if it were an imprecatory psalm or something. 
As I just said, Jesus has made clear what the church's commission is, and that means what he's commissioned every one of us to be a part of, whatever else we do with our lives. We are always to be understanding our lives in the light of his commission to us to take what he's given using whatever gifts we have and to make that great calling known. As I've said before to you, he did not call most of us to be his attorneys. He has his attorneys, the great apologists, the people whose books we enjoy reading. But most of us, he's simply called to be his witnesses. And all that a witness is called to do is to testify to what he or she has seen and experienced. And that's all that God calls of us. Wherever he sends us, he's not calling us to have polished presentations or arguments, but simply to say, one thing I know. I told you one of my favorite examples of that years ago uh, when Chuck Colson came to Christ after being Nixon's hitman, uh, Howard Hughes, the, was it Harold Hughes, the senator, Harold, Senator Harold Hughes, who'd been a Kennedy Democrat, but was also, yes, believe it or not, a very serious Christian, um, said, oh no, I don't want Colson to be my brother in Christ. I don't want to have to love that guy. But of course, God had put it together for them to become great friends. And Senator Hughes actually helped disciple Colson and get him back into a place where he could minister within government. And the two of them went on Bill Moyers' show. And Moyers, of course, had formerly been a Southern Baptist, I think, pastor before he lost his faith and went his way. And when they each told their stories, Moyers said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know all about that. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in the South, and I walked the aisle too. I know, born again, right. I did that. But let's talk about what's really going on here. And Hughes just stopped him and said, no, you don't understand at all. Once I was blind, and now I see. See, that's all that God is calling us to do, just to say, wait a minute, let me tell you my story. Well, you, let me tell you where I once was, and now where, because of God's grace, he's brought me. But Jesus says you cannot do that savingly in your own strength. You will have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. So go back to Jerusalem and wait until that promise is fulfilled. Now you may be thinking, yeah, but we live this side of Pentecost. The promise was fulfilled. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. And so what does this have to do with us now? Now when we are born again, we receive the Spirit. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 12. By one Spirit, you were all baptized into one body. Yes, that's true. But you can have the Spirit all available to you and still not be walking in the power of the Spirit who has been given, which is why these very people who at Pentecost would be so powerfully baptized with the Spirit that they would be launched out on ministry to people in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who were right there in Jerusalem. 
and yet who a few chapters later, when they are filled with fear and gathered together praying, once again we read the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. They were all filled with the Spirit. So while the baptism of the Spirit took place once, the filling of the Holy Spirit has to take place over and over and over in your life and mine. And we should always be seeking, not a second experience, but a third and a fourth. And a, until we die, we are seeking fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And so there are five moves that are made here uh, in these verses that we read that I just want to underscore. Five ways in which we see this apostolic band being bound together as one in their commitment, a commitment, unified commitment to these five things. And I want at least to try to underscore them before my voice completely gives out. Um, and the first is this. They were united in their commitment to Jesus Christ himself. How do we know that? Because of their obedience. These were the people who had all run away. And they were trying to get out of Jerusalem or hide out. And now we read that they are in the temple praising and glorifying God day after day. And then they are together in that upper room. Why? One reason only. Jesus had said, you go back to Jerusalem. Now remember, this was probably an expensive proposition for them. None of these guys, not a one of them, was from Jerusalem. They were Galileans. They all lived up in the Galilee. That's where their families were. That's where their business was. That's where their homes were. They had come down to Jerusalem, and they've now been there for weeks, having to stay, obviously, in, in rented rooms. And it's still a place of great danger now that the story is out, that Christ is risen, and that the tomb is empty. The authorities are desperate to find some way to crush this movement because people are now talking, and this thing has started, and they want to stop it. So by nature, these guys would want, and the women, although the women had shown much greater courage in going to the cross with Jesus, but they would naturally want to run and we see here what the Bible calls the obedience of faith, something that is not very popular now within the current grace movement. There is the mistaken thought that don't talk to me about obedience because that puts me under law. I'm not under law, yada, yada, yada. Boy, I can't imagine anything that would make the enemy of our souls happier to hear than that. Being under law means that you think that by living right, doing right, you find your favor with God and he saves you. But the obedience of faith is the mark that you have been saved by grace. It is the mark that God has given you his spirit and he's starting to change you. It's the mark that when Jesus said, come follow me, you heard him. That's the mark of faith. Not perfect obedience, it won't ever be. We're like Lot's wife too often, we will turn around and look back and stumble and go off path. But the fact is, if you belong to Jesus Christ, your life is on a different trajectory than it once was. 
And these guys go back to Jerusalem to do exactly what the Lord told them to do because they are united in their devotion to him. Secondly, they are united now in their devotion to each other. And this is remarkable. These are the same clowns. They're not clowns now, but boy, they were on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus keeps telling them, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm, I'm going to be handed over to my enemies. I'm going to be crucified. He's trying to prepare them for this. And they are arguing over which of them will be greatest when they get there. And as we've said before, James and John actually get their mother to go to Jesus and ask for places of honor for them. I mean, these guys are tangling with each other. And now they come to an end of themselves. Peter could never be the great preacher of Pentecost until he had denied the Lord three times and had to come face to face with who he really was. He thought he was like Jesus, but he wasn't. He was like Judas. And until you and I know that in our own flesh, we are not little Jesuses, we are little Jewish Judases. We're not yet ready to hear the great good news of grace and to see what God will make of us. So they've been broken down and now being lifted up and are ready to be put back together and made whole. They are together in this place, not just those whose names we have listed, but 120 of them gathering together and seeking the face of God, which is the third thing. They were absolutely devoted to prayer. Did you see that? This is verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. <clears throat> they knew that it is prayer that is like incense going up to the throne of God. They knew their scriptures. They knew the old covenant. And they would write of these things later, those who became inspired authors of new covenant scriptures. But they were seeking him in prayer because they knew the meaning of spirit. In the old covenant, the word for spirit in the Hebrew is ruach. It is mothers, female. It's feminine, gender. We don't translate it that way for historic reasons, I guess. But ruach is feminine. And that's the spirit. And it can mean breath or wind, spirit. It is the movement of God. It's the breath of God when he breathed and said, let there be light. It's the breath of God when he calls people to be his own and breathes into them and fills them and stands them up. He puts his own life within. When David cried out, take not your ruach from me, he's saying, don't take the breath of life from me and do not take your spirit from me. Don't depart from me. And so they are seeking him in prayer. I love to breathe. I don't think about it much unless I'm doing something a little strenuous for a 75-year-old. But this last week, as you can hear, <clears throat> I've been having a battle with it. I got a bronchitis. I let it go too long. Finally realized it had become bacterial. Had to get on 
antibiotics and prednisone, and I will tell any of you with osteoarthritis, spend a few days on prednisone. It's worth it to have anything else. <laughs> All the pains go away while you're on the prednisone. Anyway, that's just that's an aside. It's not from the text. But, but I mean, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to speak this morning. And I was struggling. I've, you see, the air is there. It's all around me. There wasn't any defect. I wasn't put in a pressure chamber or in some place and the oxygen removed. It was there, but my lungs were sick and I hadn't the capacity to breathe and be active and do the things that I love to do. So basically, I had to stay in for the whole week, which drove me nuts. One of my oldest friends who's still walking the planet, and I still am in touch with, lives right over in Pasadena. We go back 50 years to military days. He was one of the strongest, toughest guys I've ever known, brilliant, artist, but he was a looked like Burt Reynolds in those days, acted too much like him too. <laughs> but he never stopped smoking when most of the rest of us did. And now when I see that guy, so handsome still, but I have to help him if we're gonna walk upstairs together. He can hardly breathe. The air is all there, but his lungs are wrecked. You and I can destroy our spiritual lungs by failing to use the means of grace that God has given. Is his spirit there? Yes. But have we the capacity to breathe in the spirit, to gain the strength and the power that he has for us? One of the greatest means of grace in knowing that is the united prayer of the people of God. I am I'm great at my daily disciplines, at keeping my prayer times. I learned years ago that I'm like a sieve. And if I just pray in the morning by noon, uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to say. So I've got throughout today to keep my times of prayer and of seeking God's face. And I love those times alone, but there is nothing so sweet as when we worship together and when a little group of Christians get together and pray together. If you haven't yet developed a taste for that, just think of it in these terms. I always loved being able to go home as an adult and see my parents and have one-on-one -on -one time, but it didn't compare to when we could get the whole family together with them. And we could sit around and suddenly there was whole new life and things came to mind that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. That's what happens when God's people gather this way and begin to pray. And in seasons of my life, where I've just been so dry that I've realized I'm saying my prayers, but Lord, where are you? I've no sense of your presence. All that I would ever have to do was get with a few other Christians and let them pray me back in to health. They were together, committed to prayer. Fourthly, they were devoted together to God's word. What does Peter do as a result of their prayers? They're not just waiting for the Spirit to come. They want to be ready. And so 
God has been stirring in Peter to understand what's going on. What happened to Judas? How could we have made him treasurer and thought he was the one dependable one? How could we have totally missed the kind of man he was? And clearly, there were 12 of us, like the 12 tribes of Israel, and there are supposed to be 12. So how do we discover what God would have us do? And so he goes to the scriptures, and he opens them, and he expounds two psalms, no longer the way that he would have understood them before the cross and the resurrection and the appearances and the 40 days together with Jesus. Now he is expounding them in the light of all that has happened. And so he explains, this is what's happening. This is what the scriptures were talking about us and this moment. And so he opens the word as you and I are called to continue both alone and together with one another to be loving Paul's beautiful advice to uh, the Ephesians church to, to greet one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're making joy and gladness to the Lord together in your hearts. How easily I confess I miss those opportunities because I wish I could remember scripture the way that I can remember every joke I ever heard and you know every stupid thing and that always comes to mind. You'd have a lot more sympathy for the things that occasionally slip out if you had any idea how much editing is going on the whole time I'm talking to you. That inner voice going, no, no, don't even go there. Don't you dare. Can't say that. but we should be overflowing with the things that God is teaching us. And that's what we see here. The final commitment is what he does. He says, when the spirit falls, we need to be ready to go. And to be ready to go, we need to see who is the one that God has raised up in order to fill Judas's seat that he left when, when he walked away. And God showed his love by letting him go. So they pick two that they know are qualified as witnesses to the resurrection. Then they say, Lord, your spirit hasn't yet been poured out on us. So we don't know which one you've chosen. So we're going to leave it up to you. Do it the way that it was done under the old covenant by drawing lots. And they drew lots. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he's chosen. I've heard people say, yeah, but that was for Paul. They shouldn't have done it because we never hear of Matthias again. Well, the fact is we never hear of almost any of the ones that Jesus chose again by name. The fact is we only really hear of Peter, James, John, maybe once of Andrew. All the rest are out doing the work, but they don't make it back into the story. So it's Interesting that never again after Pentecost does the church draw lots. After the Spirit was poured out on them in power, they didn't need to draw lots. God showed them what he would have them do. Do you see those five commitments? Shouldn't they still mark us? Should not we, just as much as they, be committed to Jesus, to glad and joyful, grateful obedience to what he calls us to do. 
Shouldn't we be deeply committed to one another and let nothing divide us, separate us, because we're the body of Christ? Shouldn't we be committed to pray together? Because that's the family gathering. It's where we get together with our Heavenly Father. And we rejoice in His presence and, and seek His face and fresh outpourings of His Spirit. Shouldn't we be committed to His Word, studying it together? And then, shouldn't we be committed to the mission as they were, so that they said, okay, let's have everything ready to pursue the mission when the fire of God falls. Those were their five united commitments, and I believe that they should mark us just as surely as they marked them. I was able to finish. I still have a voice. Thank you, Lord. My prayer was answered. Some of yours was not. Would you stand? Stand. Again, for your great grace and mercy toward us. Thank you that you show us in your word these, these beautiful lessons where we can look at the apostles and identify in our own need. However, wildly different our situation, you are unchanged and unchanging. Your commission to us is unchanged and unchanging. And we need, as they did, the power of your spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, revive your church begin with me. Amen. Let's sing the Lord Almighty reign.